What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Matty, it is going so well over here on this side of the planet. Um, I am a little upset. It's starting to get cold out. I had to put on a sweatshirt this morning to go outside. I was a little upset at that. I love that. I'm not going to lie. I'm sorry that you're feeling upset, but man, there is nothing better for me than when the weather takes a little bit of a turn and it's shorts weather, but (laughs) it's also sweatshirt weather at the same time. Like the legs are free. I'm getting my airflow in, but also I'm cozy up top. That's what matters for me. (laughs) I do like wearing sweatshirts, but just being cold is not a fun thing. Although I will say it reminds me of like football and just like being outside and being cold and being and just playing football. I don't know. That that always brings back like uh, good memories for me. The crisp air. Uh yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I'm definitely a sweatshirt guy, so I'm happy they're back. I'd rather bundle up when it's cold than be too hot and just sweat. So, <laughs> I'm happy it's October. Somebody wake up Billy Joe Armstrong. September's over, baby. <laughs> All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we kick things off, if you haven't done so already, please hit that rating and review on Apple Podcasts for us. It'll help the show get some more visibility, get us on charts, get us working with that Apple algorithm. Even if it's something you've already done, it really helps the show a lot. Yeah, for sure. And Matt, a lot of people have been asking us for ways to get more involved. Um, And you know what? We have something for our listeners this week. That we do, Nikki. Action Network has an open petition for us to sign titled Demand Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Steny Hoyer to eliminate these subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. My friend James Bonavita sent this to me, so thank you, James. The petition specifically points out the $120 billion in tax handouts to the fossil fuel industry each year in the U.S., and that includes $20.5 billion in support each year through the tax code, direct funding, and royalty rates. So I'm sure many people are wondering how that compares to other countries. Yes. So the U.S. government ranks second in the world for supporting the oil and gas industry. Uh, And go check out the link in our show notes. Um, Click on it to sign. Yeah, and that's part of where our tax money goes to, so make sure you make your voice heard. Um, Before we move on, just want to give a quick shout-out to the organizations that are organizing this petition. So it's the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, Civic Shout, Climate Hawks Vote, Daily Cause, The Juggernaut Project, National Campaign for Transit Justice, and TakeItBack.org. 
And TakeItBack.org is not about bringing your Blockbuster DVD back to the store. All right, let's get things started here with our first quick hit of the week. It is from Manga Bay's Elizabeth Claire Alberts, and it's titled, The Cat is Back. Wild Emmer Tigers Rebound in China Thanks to Government Policies. More good news out of China's conservation scene here. Camera trap footage between 2013 and 2018 revealed about 55 Amur tigers now living in northeastern China. The director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's Russia team, Dale Mikkel, said that persistent efforts by conservationists and changes in Chinese national policies have paid off to protect the animals. He says, quote, change has not come quickly, but there has been slow, steady progress, and we see there are great opportunities for even more recovery. Mikkel was once unsure if there would be a substantial Amur population in China again, especially when there were only about eight of them left in the early 90s. So the population being back up to 55 is great, great news. He says the sudden resurgence is mainly because of China's Natural Forest Protection Project, or the NFPP, which outlawed deforestation in many parts of China. And that was a serious problem because many villages' entire economies were based on timber harvesting. The timber industry is going through a period of reduction, so the forests are growing back, and that allows the tiger population to expand. China also established the Northeast Tiger Leopard National Park in 2016, which protects roughly 5,800 square miles of forest and provides a critical habitat for both Amur tigers and Amur leopards. Eamon Wang, the director of WCS China, said that most people have been supportive of China's new focus on environmental stewardship, but cattle farmers have had an issue with the protection of land that they had previously been using for grazing of their animals. Chinese officials are looking into solutions for now, but yeah, this is cool. This is a, a definitely a positive step. Yeah, you know, Matt, I don't say this often on this show, but good job, China. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of been two sides of the same coin with them lately, where with a lot of their climate policies, it's been a, a thumb somewhere in the middle to a soft thumbs down. And then, yeah, conservation's been a, a hard thumbs up for them lately. So good job, China. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, good job. Nick, actually, when I worked at the Bronx Zoo, there was one summer where we had to teach kids about conservation campaigns. And my group chose to protect tigers with an Instagram campaign called hashtag save our stripes. So we stood outside the tiger exhibit and we held up this little paper cardboard frame, essentially. It looked like an Instagram post, and it just said under it, hashtag save our stripes, and we drew a bunch of tiger stripes on it, so it was basically your face with tiger stripes all around it. And yeah, they got a bunch of people to take pictures and post, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> That's awesome. You were the original dude with the sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and tigers are cool, man. They Their stripes are all individual, so it's kind of like human fingerprints. So that's actually how they were able to tell how many tigers there are, because you can just look at a bunch of pictures and tell which one it is based on their stripes. Whoa. I actually did not know that. That's so sick. Yeah. All right. So next up, Valerie Valkovici, David Brunstrom, and Michelle Nichols of Reuters reported in Climate Pledge, Z says China will not build new coal-fired power projects abroad. Yeah, this was definitely a good second story based on our first because we had just mentioned how a bunch of China's climate policies recently were 
kind of thumbs down, but this one's a bit of a thumbs up. So last Tuesday, Chinese President Xi Jinping said that China would not build new coal-fired power projects overseas while addressing the UN General Assembly to add to pledges to deal with climate change. Xi didn't explain how the policy would be implemented, but the move could dramatically change the developing world's financing of coal plants. China's been under pressure from the UN, other countries, and the planet today for its continued financing of coal power plants overseas at a time where we are trying to drastically reduce carbon emissions worldwide. China's announcement comes after similar commitments from South Korea and Japan earlier this year, after a push from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and US Climate Envoy John Kerry to follow their lead. Xi also committed to supporting developing countries in their efforts to develop green and low-carbon energy, so that's another great, awesome step right there. John Kerry actually called this a great contribution and a good beginning to the efforts needed at the COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow, Scotland, beginning exactly 30 days from the release of this episode. Kerry said that they had been talking to China for a while about this, and he is, quote, absolutely delighted to hear that President Xi has made this important decision. Alex Sharma, the head of COP26, said the writing is on the wall for coal power, and he welcomes President Xi's commitment. Xi also repeated last year's pledge that China would achieve a peak in carbon emissions before 2030 and reach net zero before 2060. Now, some experts have voiced the same concerns I'm about to. I worry that those goals are not enough because China still relies on coal for much of its domestic energy usage, and you know this at least means that there will be less global coal expansion from them, but they are the number one emitter in the world of carbon emissions right now. So for them to be reaching net zero, maybe close to 2060 when we need to do it before 2050, kind of need them to step up a little bit more here. Yeah. And where, where is that in terms of, you know, everyone else's net zero um, potential dates? You know, we're seeing a lot of different countries and their representatives step up and say, we'll get to net zero by 2050. Some are saying that we're going to need some economic help, we're going to need some technological development help, but everyone kind of seems to be on board with 2050, aside from a few other countries, uh, China, Russia, that they seem to be close, but 2050 doesn't seem like a hard goal for them. It seems like, you know, we're going to try, but we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. I'm hoping that next month's talks are more productive and it turns into... It's not, we get there when we get there. It's, look, we all need to get there ASAP. Yeah, and then also, does a country's um, size and population have anything to do with how quickly they can get to net zero? Yeah, I mean, so larger countries with uh, more of a carbon-based economy are going to take longer just because it's a harder conversion. I mean, you look at energy production as the main source of carbon emissions, as an example. If you're producing a lot of energy because you have a lot of people, it's really hard to just switch everything over to renewables immediately. Yeah. If you have a smaller energy grid because there's less people relying on the power, you know, a smaller switch to renewables makes a bigger difference. So yeah, definitely population size contributes a lot. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess now we just need to hope that these commitments are realized and not just empty promises. So like we said last week, maybe COP26 will make it legally binding to reach the goals each country sets. But, you know, we just have to wait and see. One month, folks. Mark it on the calendar, October 31st. Halloween. So you're dressing up for Halloween. You're also like, okay, let's see what COP26 has to offer. 
All right. So our next one is from the New York Times where Coral Murphy Marcos writes, the unconventional weapon against future wildfires, goats. And this one was actually sent in by a listener. So thank you, Izzy Woke. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Izzy. This is definitely a cool story and provides some much needed serenity after a summer that had consistent wildfire news. Speaking of wildfires, we should mention that over 1,400 firefighters saved Sequoia National Park's giant forest from the ongoing KNP fire earlier this week. The story is about Lonnie Malmberg from Silverthorne, Colorado, a state that experienced the three largest wildfires in its state's history in 2020. She has a herd of 200 goats that can pretty much eat whatever they want, and Malmberg hopes they will eat enough vegetation to lessen the impact of future wildfires. She travels the American West in a camper and is considered a pioneer in using goats to restore fire-ravaged lands to greener pastures, which makes them less prone to setting a flame during a wildfire. The article mentions that this is a word-of-mouth business and private landowners and local governments hire her to remove weeds and restore the soil with her goats. Okay, this is so, so cool. Uh, and I can't think of a better word of mouth than being published in one of the biggest newspapers in our country. Yeah, the New York Times is definitely doing her a little bit of a solid here. <laughs> <laughs> so Malmberg works with her son, Donnie Benz, and his fiance, Katie Singley, and occasionally an intern. And they pretty much just show up early, let the goats roam around and eat and make sure none of them run away. And they set up an electric fence so they can all sleep in a specific area. And what's cool about this process is the goats will eat dry brush, and then when they poop, it produces organic fertilizer for the soil, and that actually increases its ability to retain water. Malmberg says that by increasing organic matter in soil by just 1%, the soil can hold an additional 16,500 gallons of water per acre. So this is going to help prevent the wildfires from catching in these areas. Yeah, and the article also mentions how the Bureau of Land Management reached out to uh, Momberg last year because goats can work on steeper slopes. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I found that so interesting because I've actually seen that firsthand in Riverside Park in Manhattan. So at Riverside, they have goats that live on this like fenced in, extremely steep part of the park for maybe six weeks every summer. And they're pretty much just there to roam around eat some invasive species and relax. So <laughs> it's kind of cool. Like the community gets to vote on their favorite goat every year. And I don't know. I, I don't know how to just pick one. They're all <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. This is so cool. Like I didn't, I had no idea there was this much of like a goat culture. I've heard of goat yoga, but I didn't know that goats were like this yeah. um, helpful towards the environment. That's so cool. Have you heard of goats in pajamas? No. Is that another one that, is that like a Reddit page that like a subreddit? Yeah. Yeah. It's a subreddit of just (laughs) baby goats in pajamas. (laughs) Okay. I'm searching that up right after we're done here. Anyway, with the cost of wildfire suppression doubling since 1994, using goats to prevent wildfires from getting as intense in areas where they aren't supposed to occur naturally can be very important for the people that live nearby, the natural environment and the local economy of the area. Goats are good for everyone. Goats are good for your mom. Goats are good for your dad. Goats are good. (laughs) Goats are the goat. (laughs) All right, so let's move on here. Uh, Purdue University reported through a team of its engineers, the whitest paint is here, and it's the coolest, literally. Yes, this story is actually from April, and Nick and I just stumbled across it, so we wanted to share. Um, So the question is, just how white is the paint? The paint just fired up the lawnmower at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. (laughs) 
the paint changes out of one pair of khakis into a slightly darker pair of khakis before saying, these are my work pants. <laughs> this paint just laced up a fresh pair of New Balance 608s. That's the all white with the blue outline around the end. The classic white dad shoe. <laughs> This paint also finished its entire meal, then laughed hysterically while telling the waiter, I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how white this paint is. But on a serious note, the engineers believe that coating a building with this paint could one day cool the building enough to reduce the need for air conditioning. Julin Ruan, a Purdue professor of mechanical engineering, says, if you were to use this paint to cover a roof area of about 1,000 square feet, we estimate that you could get a cooling power of 10 kilowatts. That's more powerful than the central air conditioner used by most houses. I would have no idea that paint could be that powerful in cooling a room. I feel like in the summer, I wish I knew that when I lived in LA, Jesus Christ, I would have painted my room white in a second, Dude, in a heartbeat. It, it's it's like I grew up in a room that was light blue and I've always liked darker colors. Like I would have went with like a navy blue or a a forest green for my room. And my parents always said, use a lighter paint. It makes the room look lighter. It's just better. But maybe that's why my room didn't get so hot. (laughs) Um, So the researchers believe the paint could actually reflect up to 98.1% of sunlight compared with 95.5% of sunlight with the previous whitest paint ever created. Using high-accuracy temperature reading equipment called thermocouples, the researchers have found that the paint can keep outdoor surfaces 19 degrees Fahrenheit cooler at night and 8 degrees cooler at noon in the sunlight. Holy mother. Yeah, the paint's solar reflectance also worked in the middle of winter, so they did an outdoor test in 43 degrees Fahrenheit weather, and the paint still lowered their testing sample by 18 degrees Fahrenheit. This is cool, and it also kind of speaks to how certain advances in technology that might not seem to be environmental, per se, can definitely have a great impact on some of our largest issues today. This is also something that could have an incredible impact on future buildings or just renovations to address energy efficiency. And I'm sure they're already looking into this, but if not, I mean, I hope that they can look into getting that same solar reflectance into other colors. That way... It can just be a feature of any commercial paint, like other than having every single building on a street be white for climate purposes. Let's get some solar reflectance in a light yellow, a soft blue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be sick. Um, And I wonder what they're going to name the paint. Are they just going to call it like white? I think you have to give it like a good name, like Lowe's at 7 a.m. on a Saturday, white. (laughs) (laughs) Zuckerberg white. Moving on to The Guardian, where Oliver Millman wrote, Dramatically more powerful, world's first battery electric freight train unveiled. At Carnegie Mellon University last Friday, the train was unveiled by Wabtec, which is a Pittsburgh-based rail freight company. The school and the company work together to create zero emissions technology for American railroad shipping, which currently amounts to about 1.7 billion tons of goods annually. Wabtec showed off its 75-foot train to politicians, rail execs, and academics who all want a quicker transition away from fossil fuels. The train is called the FLX Drive Battery Electric Locomotive and features 500 lithium-ion battery modules to power it. It underwent trials in California earlier this year, which appeared to show an 11% reduction in fuel consumption, 
or about 6,200 less gallons of diesel fuel for shipping. Wabtec plans to roll out the next generation of this train within two years and believes it will be able to cut diesel fuel by roughly one-third. They said that emissions will be entirely cut out of the process through the development of accompanying hydrogen fuel cell technology, and they also estimate that 300 million tons of earth-warming emissions could be cut per year if this tech is deployed worldwide. Nearly half of those saved emissions would occur in the United States alone. This is viewed as only the beginning and not a final step in the rollout process, which should be exciting to hear. I mean, this is already a big step and they're just keep plugging along. So Bill Sanders, dean of the College of Engineering at Carnegie Mellon, hopes that a proposed institute with the university will help power research on fuel cells, battery systems and railroad efficiencies, all of which will ultimately make railroad less carbon intensive. He says, this is a very exciting moment. Battery technology is developing extremely quickly now. People talk about autonomous cars, but I think progress on rail is significantly closer than that. We see interest from the federal government in supporting this, and I think that would be extremely helpful. Yeah, I mean, the the rail industry, I feel like, in terms of like just transporting goods, is way larger than the uh, industry for transporting people. Like I, I can only think of Amtrak as like the, um, at least in the Northeast here, it's just like, that's your only option and it's like expensive and not worth it. So anything towards a, you know, an electric, uh, train is an awesome step. I've been pushing the hyperspeed train. I don't know how many times I've had to say it, but I think it's just a great idea. We need it, man, and throw some solar panels on top of the roofs and just have it power itself as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, but yeah, just to kind of highlight what he was talking about, federal funding is really important for this because you need public support, but the incentives through the government make it so much easier to accomplish your goals and also easier for the public to justify their support. I also feel like autonomous cars are getting pretty damn close, so if progress on rail to lower their emissions is closer than that, that's exciting to me. Yeah, super exciting. All right, so David Wagman of PV Magazine writes, TransAlta targets renewable energy growth in Canada, the US, and Australia. This is a quick one and not one we have to spend a ton of time on, but the Calgary-based utility is abandoning its goal of switching a coal power plant over to natural gas and is instead investing around $3 billion Canadian dollars, which is like $2.37 billion US dollars into solar, onshore wind, and battery storage projects. The company said it had significant growth aspirations across Canada, the US, and Australia. Yeah, and they also said that they plan to focus on larger customers, so this is something that could make a really big difference. Yeah, this is cool. It kind of shows even some investors are seeing the writing on the walls for fossil fuels. And now for our final quick hit of the week, Matthew Daly of the Associated Press writes, EPA rule sharply limits HFCs, gases used as refrigerants. Hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, are man-made organic compounds that contain hydrogen and fluorine atoms, and they're often used in refrigerators and air conditioners. They were originally used as a replacement for chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were popular in refrigeration and hairspray before they were banned in the late 90s because they were depleting the ozone layer. As it turns out, HFCs also have their own problems. 
They're extremely potent because of how long they remain in the atmosphere, and because they trap thousands of times more heat than the same amount of carbon dioxide or methane gas would, they're a real problem. The Biden administration announced last Thursday that it would follow through on a law passed by Congress last year, which intends to decrease U.S. production and use of HFCs by 85% over the next 15 years. That rule is set to kick off in late October and should reduce harmful emissions by 4.5 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide by 2050. That's the equivalent of three years of emissions from the U.S. power sector. So that's a really big deal. Many industry groups support this decision because they had been shifting to the use of alternative refrigerants for a while now. And they were kind of hoping for a federal standard instead of navigating different state laws and regulations. Now there's just going to be one simple ruling, and that's what they have to follow. The decision has also received support from major environmental groups and business groups, which is pretty rare for environmental regulations. Regulating the use of HFCs is not without its potential problems, though, as we've seen in other countries who have taken similar steps. The European Union has experienced a lot of illegal activity on trading of HFCs after beginning to phase out the gases there, according to Joseph Goffman, who's a top official with the EPA's Air and Radiation Office. To address this, the Biden administration said it will create an interagency task force to prevent illegal trade, production, use, or sale of the climate-damaging gases. The task force will be headed by the Department of Homeland Security and the EPA's Office of Air and Radiation and the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. So this is exciting, and it is definitely, definitely good to see the U.S. taking a positive step towards climate change mitigation while also learning from our allies overseas in Europe. Yeah, that is really cool. I had no idea that hairspray was depleting the ozone. Yeah, I mean, that's probably because they were starting to phase out by the time you and I were born. The Montreal Protocol was signed in 1987, and that banned CFCs, which were the things that were in hairspray that were causing the ozone to be depleted. So that was a big step, and we saw some genuine progress from that. So, you know, not to keep hammering this point home, but hopefully we see something like that at the end of this month. October 31st, baby, COP26. Let's get it. (laughs) All right, so Maddie, I think that's a good time to take a break. I need one. Let's do it. And after the break, we're going to be talking about my favorite documentary of 2020, My Octopus Teacher. Nick, I've got some bad news. Oh, God. What is it? I did not go apple picking last weekend because of a scheduling conflict that I kind of forgot about. Ugh. But you know what I would have brought to wipe off those apples if I did go? Ugh. I know exactly what it is, Matt. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief. I would have those apples looking spotless, freshly waxed without the wax. <laughs> <laughs> no pesticides for this man. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. 
Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Guys, clean your apples, clean your fruit. You don't know what pesticides is on that fruit. Save yourself, save a life. Get a Vala Alta. Planet today for October's documentary review, we watched My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. The film was released on September 7th, 2020, and was written and directed by Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed, and narrated by Craig Foster. So the summary from IMDb says, after years of swimming every day in the freezing ocean at the tip of Africa, Craig Foster meets an unlikely teacher, a young octopus who displays remarkable curiosity. Visiting her den and tracking her movements for months on end, he eventually wins the animal's trust and they develop a never-before-seen bond between human and wild animal. So Nick, you had seen this film before. I hadn't. What were your thoughts as a second-time viewer? I mean, the first time I watched it, I was like, holy crap, this guy literally just made friends with an octopus. And like, he is, the octopus is emotional. It has feelings. Like, I was so blown away by by that um but this time around I think I was more into like Craig himself and like how interesting it was that he would go to the same spot every single day and like just track this thing and having that much dedication is like so awesome so that's really interesting you said that because I was reading a couple um I I was looking for more just like general discussions that people had about the film and see if there was any interesting questions that you and I should be talking about on our show and One of the reviews that I read said that my octopus teacher, if you ask anyone else, it's a story about Craig Foster. But if you ask Craig Foster, it's a story about an octopus. (laughs) So it's really interesting how you like see the film through his lens and through what he's feeling. Because in all reality, he's the main character but he's only doing all this because he's so invested in this octopus. So super interesting. And I'm, I I think it's really cool that you brought that up too. Yeah, it's, it is really cool. And like, like you just said, like this movie would be about Craig if there was no octopus, like he would just be swimming in cold water and that's it. Okay. So the cold water thing, I could not help, but just laugh at first when he was like, after about a year, you start to crave the cold. He's like, your body gets used to it. I was like, there's no way I would crave that cold. Like, I just simply wouldn't do something like this for a full year if it's that miserable just to get used to it. But on the other hand, I'm a distance runner. So I guess it's kind of the same thing where like, it just sucks until it doesn't suck. And then you start to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And for me, that's like, uh, like I'm a huge aperitif guy and like getting into all the bitters and stuff and you have like a taste of a bitter drink and it's like what what am I doing why am I poisoning myself and then you just start to like really enjoy it and you like learn more it's the same thing I mean we don't need another analogy but like it it is the same thing you start to crave it I get it yeah yeah so it's interesting is so the movie starts off with Craig Foster talking about how he was burnt out Um, he was studying the sand bush hunters of the Kalahari Desert for his 2000 film The Great Dance and feeling that burnout he made this drastic life change and 
use the skills that he learned from those trackers to start swimming. And he wanted to do some adventuring, some research, and just kind of connect with the world the way that the bush hunters did. So he's swimming off the coast of Africa, and that's where he meets this octopus. Coming into the film, I knew octopus were considered masters of camouflage, but dude, any time you get to see it, it's still so cool. Like the first scene where we meet the young octopus and she just kind of drapes herself in algae and then swims away and changes color. It's just, it's just really cool. Yeah, it's, it's so cool. And she makes, um, oh, it's a she, did I give that away? I didn't mean to give that away. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I think, I think he says it early on that he, I don't know. I forget. It's a she. Yeah, she makes a chameleon look like it's like a, it's like a bop it, like it's just like so mo- like so dumbed down version of an octopus. Like the octopus is so smart, like the brains is just insane. Yeah, and that first interaction that he has with her, where you know he says, "I'm gonna come back and dive in that location every day." So, you know, he he even has the foresight to leave his camera and just record it. That way he doesn't scare her away at first. Um, and one of the takeaways I had while he was doing that was just underwater forests are so complex and so breathtaking. And I think if I wasn't terrified of the deep ocean, I would love to explore something like that someday. Yeah, a hundred percent. I was thinking the same thing when I was watching, like the first time I was watching, I was like, oh, okay. Like this is a Netflix, this is on Netflix. So they're just going to like have a jump scare at some point. I'm just waiting for the jump scare or like a shark to come out of, of somewhere but yeah, I was definitely thinking that the whole time. Yeah, it's like deep ocean, deep space. I have so much interest in it, but I don't know. No no shot. You will not catch me. You will not catch me in either of those places. So he starts to develop this relationship with the octopus over the course of a month. And then by day 26, Foster says that her fear seemed to just go away over time. And she started to become more curious of him without taking stupid chances So he puts his hand out and she just reaches a tentacle out to touch it. And already I'm like, what a cool relationship. Like, I'm so jealous of this guy. (laughs) And I was also just kind of blown away when he said that each octopus has to teach itself how to survive because they don't have parents to teach them. And they also need to learn fast because they only have a year to live. Like, I had no idea that they have such a short lifespan. Yeah, I'm trying to put myself in that position and I would be a much different person if I had no parents to to teach me what to do and what not to do. I would just be like peeing myself all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also want to talk about when the octopus is following him. So he drops a lens at one point uh, for his camera and she gets scared and swims off and I just can't imagine how much that would suck to work so hard over the course of a month plus at this point. And then like Craig Foster says, you don't know if you're ever going to earn that trust back. I would be crushed. Yeah. He was devastated when it happened. Like he was like, yeah, it affected my family life. Like I didn't talk to my son for like a week. (laughs) Like, dude, it's, I get it. But like, it's your son. <laughs> Which is also funny because I think he starts off the documentary with like, I was burnt out from filmmaking and I wanted to spend more time with my family. <laughs> it's like, nope, we're back in it. Octopus is mad at me. <laughs> Goodbye, family. <laughs> Just wrote him off. Um, it was also cool when he channeled his inner tracker, you know, learning 
from those skills that he watched firsthand in the Kalahari Desert um, and then tries to find the octopus based on algal patterns, digging areas, predation patterns, etc. And, you know, from a meta standpoint, I knew he was going to find her again because we had an hour of the documentary left. But at the same time, I just couldn't believe he found this octopus again after thinking like an octopus, as he said. Like, she just kind of came over and grabbed his hand already. And then he needed to go up for air. So next thing we know, Craig Foster's at the surface of the water and has an octopus with him. Like, that is unreal. Yeah, it's so cool. It was so cool. And, like, the the map that he had set up of, like, it was like the Pepe Silvia one in uh, Always Sunny. Have you ever seen that where Charlie has like the map up and it's just like all these like pins and tacks and like lines and ropes and stuff. That was that was the exact comparison I was going to make. Really? I'm not even kidding. No way. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm watching and I was like, it's like yo, this is Charlie Day, right? He's <laughs> just like mad, like mad serial killer style vibes. <laughs> yeah. Just... <laughs> But in this case, it worked. I mean, like, we could make fun of it, but results are results. Yeah, it was worth it, 100%. Still obsessive, though. (laughs) (laughs) So he makes a few more trips to the surface like that over the course of the next couple days. And, you know, later on, she is just straight up suctioned to his chest before she swims away. Like, I, I didn't have any expectations for this documentary other than going into it. You told me it was really good and you liked it a lot. So seeing that just blew my mind. Yeah. Like, my extent with wild animals is I've given seeds to birds. (laughs) Um, I've had a horse, a wild horse, eat a sandwich out of my hand. It wasn't on purpose. I was just holding my sandwich in my left hand on Assateague Island in Maryland. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, next thing I know, this wild horse walks over and just stole my lunch. (laughs) But but I I can't say I've ever had an octopus suctioned to my chest. That takes a next level sense of trust and understanding. Yeah. Like Craig is her father or something. Like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Relationship over with my real son. <laughs> this octopus is my daughter now. <laughs> uh, just jokes, Craig, if you're listening. Um, so fast forward a little bit to day 104 and at, he does a ton of research on the octopus as a species And he starts to realize that a lot of the behavior that he is observing is under-researched or not researched at all yet. So he does this dive at night because octopus are nocturnal species. So diving at night makes sense once you get past the whole being in the ocean in the dark at night thing, which, look, I already mentioned I don't want anything to do with this during the daytime. (laughs) No shot. I'm going in this at night. (laughs) Yeah, you couldn't pay me. There's no amount of money you could pay me to go into the, the ocean dark at night. Yeah, I have, I have no interest. I'm sorry. Like, let other people do this. I will watch your documentaries. I will enjoy your documentaries. I don't need to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so when he finds her, and, you know, sure enough, he does find her, um, she is so active. Like, she was running around and changing what she looked like. And he said that she caught three fish in front of him which is substantial because he said that he had never seen her catch fish during the day. So to go from none at all to all of a sudden three in probably an hour, like that's a wild thing to get on camera. Yeah. Like during the day, she's basically hanging out with them. They're just chilling, having like a couple beers. (laughs) And then at night she turns into like full on like killer mode. 
So I watched this film with Kaylee and at the beginning she goes, I swear if they make me get attached to this octopus just to have it die, I'm going to be pissed. (laughs) And on day 125, a shark gets a hold of one of her tentacles and, you know, it's a pretty sad scene and we're both looking at each other like, all right, I guess this is the scene neither of us wanted to see. And after the shark yanks off that tentacle, Foster notices that she's moving slowly and weak and she's pretty far from the den and he's worried, like, should I interfere? Should I get her to safety? But he kind of has this epiphany of, nope, I can't interfere with the natural cycle of things. And luckily enough, she makes it to the den. And that's when he leaves. Yeah, and God, I mean, I don't know how you could even leave the ocean. He probably wanted to stay in there all night with her, but, um, you know, understandably so, you can't do that. Yeah. You do have a family to get home to. (laughs) (laughs) You do have a son to neglect, so got to get back home. I just, I can't even imagine trying to sleep that night. Like I would be up all night thinking about whether or not she was okay. And honestly, probably have the same feeling of guilt that he had where he was like, is this my fault? You know, he was worried that she was out because he was there. And that's why the shark actually got her. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably tough not to interfere, especially when something, you, I mean, think about like your dog is, you know, getting attacked or something. You're going to do everything you can in order to make it stop. So that's probably what he felt too. Yeah, and that's a good comparison because like at the end of the day, it's, it is different. Like your dog is domesticated. It's your pet. It lives with you. But he did feel this genuine attachment to the octopus in the same way that we feel genuine attachments to our dogs. So yeah, yeah I'm sure he definitely struggled with that a lot. Um, and then he returns the next day. She's alive, breathing, but you wouldn't really consider her healthy. So at this point, like I'm starting to get worried. He's been worried all night. I'm sure everyone watching was like, this is it. This, this is yeah. where we lose her. And he keeps going over the course of a week. And eventually she starts to grow back her tentacle and she seemed to be healthy again. So roller coaster of a scene. Like I'm worried we're going to lose her. And then all of a sudden, the little tentacle pops out, it's regenerated, she's good to go, and she's healthy. Yeah, and I had considered too, I was like, wait, do they regrow like limbs and stuff and tentacles? And I was not sure, and then they, they show that scene, I was like, oh my God, she had the little like nub, it was like a little nub of a yeah of a tentacle coming on, it was just so cool. Yeah, so I thought that they regenerated when they, when they lost tentacles, but when even when you're so confident about something, when you see an animal struggling like that, like she didn't look good. I was like, okay, there's no way that she regenerates. Like, I don't yeah. know where I heard this. I'm definitely wrong. <laughs> she looks yeah. awful. And then <laughs> sure enough, there it is. So by day 127, Foster began to see more of her hunting patterns, including some hilarious trial and error with hunting lobsters. They were just kind of like jumping out of the way every time she tried to grab one. And (laughs) I had never seen lobsters swim before and I just couldn't stop laughing and just like swimming by flapping their tail up and going backwards. (laughs) Why do they swim like that? That's just so weird. But yeah, watching her learn and adapt was cool because it kind of reinforces that idea of octopus are really smart. Um, And it was cool to see that along with developing this friendship, Foster was also pulling out a ton of information on how the food web in this underwater forest actually works. On day 304, there's a shark that's swimming around her and just sniffing about, and the shark finally finds her. So she launches some ink 
jets off into the algal forest canopy above, wraps herself in some algae to hide. And I'm like, oh my God, this is intense. But she jumps out of the water, goes onto a rock island to hide. And I'm like, wait, can they survive on the land? And as you're having that thought, Craig Foster goes, but she has to go back into the water to breathe eventually. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. So then she goes back in. Shark continues the chase while she's spraying ink and swimming away. It's like straight out of an action movie. Yeah, this was the most dramatic scene by far. And it was like tense. I was on the edge of my seat. I was like ready to freak out. Yeah, and then Foster sees her pick up, he says, like, a hundred shells and rocks. And she wraps herself within them. That way she can hide or protect herself. Either way, this was the behavior that he saw the first time he met this octopus. So it brings us full circle right to the beginning. Um, And then the shark grabs her and starts doing its death roll to go for the kill. And at this point, I am worried. And Foster has to go up for air and immediately dive back down. And here I am sitting there watching it like he's going to go back down there and just find her dead. There was almost no way that she came out of this like unscathed or even like alive, to be honest. I was like, this is the end of the movie. And I just watched, you know, all this for nothing because I'm just going to be devastated now. It's a good thing you said almost no chance because when he gets back down there, it is straight out of a cartoon. She's now riding the shark's back, still wrapped in the <laughs> shells and the stones. And then the shark just kind of swims past the spot where she's comfortable hiding. So she jumps off, gets back to her den, and the shark swims away. It was incredible. Um, so next I want to talk about the scene where she's just playing with the fish and kind of chasing them, but not in an attempt to hunt them. Foster says that it's rare for an antisocial animal like this to play. And not only did he witness it, he catches it on camera. And eventually she runs over to him and basically just gives him a big hug. So, Nick, I want your take on something. There's an argument to be had for saying that when animals do human-like things, we kind of project what we think they're doing. So, you know, when your dog does something bad and it might not feel guilty at all, but we look over and we're like, oh, look how guilty they are. Like, I can't stay mad at you. (laughs) There's another argument to be had for saying you know, they don't feel that way, but it's important to project these things onto animals because that gets people to care and more advocacy is better. So where do you stand here? Like, do you think Craig Foster was friends with the octopus or was she just unafraid of him and curious? I, I like to think that they were friends, Matt, and maybe that's just the sappy, uh, romantic in me, but I think they were just good old friends. I think they, I think she like literally had like a, an attachment to him. I, I don't know how to describe it other than that. Like she would spend countless hours around him and it almost was like a marriage. I mean, it tore him away from his son for Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to agree with you here. Kind of a cop out for me though. So I think you're right. I think that they can definitely form an attachment and definitely have feelings, especially an animal as intelligent as an octopus. But the reason I say I'm going to have a cop out here is my answer is, does it matter? Like whether or not the relationship and friendship is real or if we're just projecting it, he felt so strongly about this that it made for a really compelling documentary and a really compelling documentary 
is often enough for people to be interested in protecting marine life and protecting octopus as a species. So whether or not that relationship's real, I think the outcome is good. Yeah, I can totally agree with that line of thinking. Like if it's going to push conservation and advocacy forward um, and just make people more like aware that these animals have brains and, you know, think before they act. Uh, I think that'll push it forward for sure. Yeah. And, you know, to the listeners, you can be in the same school of thought as Nick and me and say, yeah, they have this relationship. Or you can think the opposite and think, you know, there's just curious and not afraid of you. Either way, we can all agree that it was a very, very good thing that this happened. Yeah, absolutely. So the documentary does take a turn for the worse, as we kind of all expected. And just to set the scene, towards the end of the female octopus's life, she kind of has to sacrifice herself. That way the species can go on. Foster knows this, and he can't help but feel sad when this day comes for his octopus friend. So the octopus mates becomes extremely weak in caring for her eggs and basically just drifts away barely alive after she lays the eggs and this all leads to a big shark taking her away to the misty kelp forest so foster says he got to experience around 80 percent of her life and that scene with the big hug where she's playing with the fish was actually the last time that they made contact so honestly kind of a poetic ending for that friendship even though it ended with a shark (laughs) yeah i mean this was a brutal scene to watch to be honest like just her getting like i don't want to say i don't even want to say i'm not going to say it but um yeah it was it was a really hard scene to watch and like you almost felt like it was you that was like friends with the octopus towards the end and to have it just you know wade away in in the ocean was uh pretty tough yeah, it's like you, you knew the scene's coming. You know that this documentary has to have an end. And from Foster's point of view, why would he stop diving? You know, like, why would he stop going back to that place to see her if not for this? So you knew it was coming. It doesn't make it any easier. Um, but some positive news out of the, the ending of this. His son takes up marine biology and diving with him. So that's kind of cool. Like you could tell how sad he was when the octopus died and rightfully so, but I'm sure sharing experiences like this with his son, you know, his actual child, not his <laughs> octopus child, uh, kind of puts things into perspective for him. Yeah, for sure. He was, he was like, you know what? Okay, fine. I'll start taking care of my son and like actually talking to him. Again. <laughs> <laughs> the film closes by saying Craig Foster still dives every day, but he no longer swims alone. He co-founded the Sea Change Project, a growing community of divers that is dedicated to the lifelong protection of the kelp forest. So this is great because, you know, not only did this have a personal impact on Foster and an impact on everyone who watches the film, but this is now going to be extended onto conservation of the region that gave him so much and gave us one hell of a documentary. Yeah, it really was so good. It was uh, probably one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen in my whole life. Yeah, it's definitely up there for me. I liked it a lot. All right, before we close things out for the day, same three questions that we talk about at the end of all of our documentary reviews. What was the most impactful scene for you? I think it's got to be the last scene that we were just talking about where she's putting her entire life, you know, into just having, you know, these these uh, baby octopuses and like being so selfless 
and uh, you know, basically killing herself in order to do so is uh, admirable and and really cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, for me, I think it's the first scene where the octopus comes to the surface with him because I just. I didn't expect that whatsoever. Like I thought he was going to be following an octopus around for the length of the documentary. So to see that first time where she just hops on his hand and he goes up to the surface and kind of brings her, I just, I was blown away. It was incredible. It was, it was like, I've never seen that before. I never will probably see that again. Like that's how I felt. It was so cool. All right, Matt, what was your key takeaway for the film as a whole? I would say, you know, there's so much beauty and intelligence and just, amazing aspects of the animal kingdom that are so worth protecting and documentaries can sometimes bring a light to something like this where I never would have studied an octopus as intensively as we did for the hour and a half where we watched this movie like I knew enough about them like as much as the next guy but I care now and yeah this is something where I'm sure a lot of people watch and they're like yeah I would love to keep up with this and make sure that those kelp forests are being protected. And it's great that Craig Foster's foundation is doing that now. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, and, and yeah, in a similar vein, my key takeaway was just like how emotional these animals could be and like how much, you know, brain power they have and, um, how they like are tactile and stealthy. I don't know. It's just so cool to me that they're so almost like human, like, yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, last one. On a scale of wouldn't recommend to I loved it, what would you rate My Octopus Teacher? You already know my answer, everyone. It is an I loved it. I would recommend it to everyone. Recommend it to your friend that hates water and they will like it. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I also would give this an I loved it. Um, I was honestly just blown away by all the shots they got on camera and all the interactions that Foster got with the different marine life there. It was just so cool and such a unique documentary and also the score was fantastic it was oh man good call on that i, I forgot about that but yeah that, that's a great call i can't take credit for that kaylee pointed that out to me um so shout out kaylee who does our logo and all of our graphic design work and comments on scores when we watch the documentary together right on kaylee <laughs> all right that'll do it for this week's episode of tpt Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for some quick hits before we air my interview with Eddie Badrina of Eden Green Technology and The Seed Effect. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We are also in the process of making a TikTok that's also at planettodaypod, so you can follow that. It's not going to post anything for a little while because it's got some other stuff to take care of first, but that is in the pipeline, baby. Let's get it. We would also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend. We love getting new listeners. We love engaging with people on social media posts. So help us get some eyes on the show and we will let our talk and do the rest. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you can send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too, just like Izzy Woke did for this episode. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we will try to make it happen. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on a different service, the reviews on Apple help our show the most. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. 
Nick, where can our listeners keep up with you? You can keep up with me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.